This, I want to share with you in the next uh, slide, a statement from a patient who suffers from keratoconus that was posted on one of the keratoconus uh, patient social media sites. So this guy from Gambia in West Africa said, honestly, keratoconus really affects my education and I can't go forward. I really want to further my education so that I have good documents and better job to help myself, my family, help people who can't help themselves financially or in terms of education. I'm having to go for overseas treatment. My problem is I am poor and my parents are poor. They cannot afford the treatments. And this treatment is what is really stopping me from furthering my education. And it's also affecting my future, which is scary for me mentally. I mean, that is unbelievably impactful. And the truth is that we see our keratoconic patients perhaps a few times a year, you know, once they're relatively stable, maybe once or twice a year, and we see them for X number of minutes. And the truth is, that we really don't have the foggiest idea of the impact that this disease has on their lives on an every day, every hour, every moment basis. So our limited exposure really fails to convey how this disease impacts our patients' lives. So Melissa, I'd like you to just tell us based on your extensive clinical experience, some of the ways in which keratoconus impacts your patients' lives as the disease progresses from what you've heard from your patients? The work that we do as eye doctors in our clinical practice can really change lives and help lives. And I think a lot of what we do when we're talking to patients with keratoconus is listening and counseling and giving them resources like the National Keratoconus Foundation to meet other people with the condition that they can connect with. I'll just share a, a recent story of a patient, a new patient to me, and you've all seen this patient, but she was an 18-year-old who had cross-linking already. She was in school, but could, could not complete her studies because of her 2200 vision. And she came in for scleral lenses. And these patients are some of my favorites where they're at that really critical point in their lives. They're deciding if they wanna to go to school or work and they're becoming more and more independent. But she was such a success story. So I fit her with scleral lenses. She was 20-20 in each eye. She's now in school and just the way that she walks in the room and her mannerisms and how she smiles now and she can drive. She can actually be independent and drive. And we have so many of these patients where some of my favorites are they can see their kids again. They've never seen their children. They can do whatever they want to do. And by diagnosing and managing early in one's life, we can really help them throughout their lives. But I think that all of us are there for our patients. We're there to support them and help them. And it's our honor to do so, but it's really important for us to keep in mind the impact that keratoconus has on a patient's life. The impact of some of these conditions, like something like post-refractive surgical ectasia, can have not only on our patients, which you know is, is quite devastating, but it really can have a negative impact on our practices and our reputations. Um, I know that uh, some of these cases have occurred in Manhattan, in, in New York, some of the biggest cases that we've heard about, um, but can you comment on um, how negatively this can impact our practices? 
you know, understanding the mentality behind it, these patients went in for an elective procedure and had uh, a, a complication that has uh, left them with a uh, condition that is with them every waking moment. Um, these individuals are very unhappy uh, with the, uh, the outcomes and are very, very vocal about it. Um, they share these, uh, you know, their stories on social media. Uh, even though the risk of ectasia is extremely low, the incidences of them are just extremely low. Um, the the reality is, is for that individual, that is extremely impactful to their life. Um, and those individuals are very, um, I, I would say, you know, very grateful for the care that you can deliver but also uh, very adamantly uh, stanced against those procedures because of their outcome. Um, and I would say that, you know, the impact on, you know, patient to patient referrals from these individuals is usually they're very grateful um, when you're able to provide them care that improves their vision, um, but they can be uh, very, very unhappy individuals, and you can clearly see the impact that uh, Ectasia has had on their quality of life. Gloria, having outcomes of genetic testing for keratoconus should significantly impact our practice patterns. Can you please share with us how you see the results of Avigen genetic testing for keratoconus influencing your approach in clinical practice? I am incredibly excited um, that we will have access to genetic testing for our keratoconus patients as well as their family members. And I think it's not only exciting, but I mentioned earlier, it brings me a sense of relief because we don't have to wonder anymore and, and just kind of imagine in our minds is this family member going to develop keratoconus? Are my children going to develop it? We actually have a test now that can look at that question. So how would this impact my clinical practice? One, I think for my younger patients, so pediatric patients in their teens and late teens and, and 20s, I would suggest that all of their siblings, if they have siblings, get tested for the condition. I today saw a, a patient whose brother and mother have keratoconus. And when he came in to see me, he said, you know, my mom said I should come see you, but I'm not sure what condition she has. Um, and I did tomography on him and he clearly has keratoconus. So I think even though your family member has keratoconus, don't assume that they've educated everybody else about their own condition. So recommending that siblings get tested. And then for adults who have keratoconus and who have children, I would recommend all their children get tested. And from what I understand, there's no age limit to who you can test. So I would say, you know, even children, young children, um, that they consider get, getting the testing done to prevent any signs of keratoconus developing in their eyes. And I think if we can detect the risk and send these patients in for uh, treatment, such as with corneal cross-linking, we're going to be preventing a lot of um, uh, corneal changes that happen in the more advanced stages. So I definitely recommend it to siblings and also children of adult keratoconus patients. Personalized medicine is becoming a very hot uh, term, a hot topic in healthcare. 
genetic testing has the potential to drive all elements of disease management. So how do you see genetic testing influencing optometric practices over the years to come in a more generalized concept? Look, every disease out there, if, you're, if you test positive in a genetic test for a certain disease, that's going to change your regular and routine evaluations, right? So um, for example, if I have a patient that comes in, um, so mom comes in, 43-year-old mom comes in for refractive surgery. Uh, we do a, a, you know, a penicam on them. We find that they have, have keratoconus and we say, hey, let's test the kids. Um, kid number one comes in. Um, we do a genetic test. We do an Avagen uh, and we do a topography. Topography looks clean. Avagen is positive. What does that do? That tells me I might not see my, I'm going to make sure that that child is coming to see me at a more frequent basis than maybe once every two years, even though it should be every year before school, in my opinion. But that kid, maybe we should look at him every six months because we know how quickly a vision in a pediatric case can drop off. And then like um, Mile was saying before that these kids have to live with this disease for the rest of their life um, in, in a much more significant manifestation of the disease. So it's gonna change my routine care. It's gonna change my follow-up schedule. Um, and it's also going to um, make me more aggressive in my evaluation of certain tests. And it may change my history. I might ask different questions. I might perform different tests during the exam. I might do a point spread function uh, wavefront aberrometry on an 11 year old where I typically wouldn't before. Um, so it's, it, it, it is really going to make it a pers more personalized um, experience. So I've actually been talking to my patients for this whole entire year about genetic testing and the Avagen test for keratoconus. And first, I would encourage everyone to do so because my patients have been so interested, especially for their children and their families, and very excited that there is a genetic test for keratoconus. Now, we all know the psychosocial aspects of keratoconus and how it can really impact a person's life, especially at the timing of the diagnosis in the early um, teens or, or late teens or early 20s. But I would also encourage you to think about the economic impact of keratoconus on a person's life. And if we can detect keratoconus earlier and provide appropriate management solutions that can help them long-term, not only prevent a corneal transplant, but help them with the economic impact of what keratoconus, can, how, that, how keratoconus can affect their lives. You know, my opinion is that historically keratoconus patients have been treated in silos in eye care and that eye care practitioners often have approached uh, these patients with their individual clinical biases. For example, you know, I've seen many, many patients who've been in practices where they've just been, you know, fit in contact lens after contact lens after contact lens as their condition continues to progress and no mention to these patients that there's even a treatment to control progression. I've seen also patients who have gone to practices that can easily be managed for vision correction with contact lenses who've been told they should have a corneal transplant. Uh, so everybody tends to unfortunately work in these silos. And I think we would all agree that appropriate management of these patients is a comprehensive approach. And that approach integrates vision correction, as well as disease progression management. 
So perhaps I'd like a few of us maybe to make a couple of uh, comments about how you approach your patients with keratoconus in a more comprehensive way. I think I'm fortunate to work in a setting where we have people who do all levels provide all levels of this care. So I work with corneal specialists, I work with other optometrists, I fit contacts myself. And so when we think about keratoconus, we have to think about, you know, like you said, you know, from start from early stages to later stages and what would best suit the particular patient. So when I see keratoconus patients, the first thing on my mind is, you know, what is their age? And at what stage are they at? And have we missed potential treatment with corneal crosslinking? So that's kind of top of my mind. Um, second is, are they getting best corrected vision? And that's where I will fit them with the contact that is modality that's best for them and their lifestyle. And then if surgery is required, then I will send them to my corneal specialist, um, whether it's for, you know, topography guided PRK, um, whether it's for intacts, um, or um, if it gets so severe that they can't see out of significant central scarring, then that's when we would consider a corneal transplant. So I think everybody's role is important and you kind of have to not forget that there are other people who can help you and that you can't do it all. Now, Mile, you're in a, you know, in a primary care optometric practice, not in a you know, university setting. How do you approach that comprehensive management within your own practice setting? I think we listed it already. Appropriate identification of these individuals. It's remarkable, Barry, to me how many of these patients are just kind of floating around out there unaware of why they can't see as well as they want to out of their glasses or traditional soft contact lenses. So identification is first. Next is discussing the options based on a lot of the things that Gloria said, specifically the age of the patient. If we're talking about a 60-year-old male who's known he's had keratoconus for the last 40, 50 years, that's going to be different than an individual who's 14 and now is starting to want to uh, change his glasses to contact lenses. And we incidentally find that the individual has keratoconus. But I think educating patients on the options, um, if they're under 18 with the parent, obviously, but to help us come to a consensus on what we feel as healthcare provider to patient is the best path moving forward. Sometimes that's just contacts or scleral lenses. Sometimes that's surgery. And oftentimes it's a combination of the two. And just to chime in really quickly that we can't forget the importance of collaborative care here with other providers. Um, and also in to, to refer amongst our colleagues too. So for those of us who don't fit specialty lenses to refer to someone who does versus referring straight to a corneal transplant. You know, talk about the previous point though. I think that there's kind of a way that you can think of this, which is that corn, uh, you know, keratoconus management can really be thought of as a one, two, three, which is essentially you want to stop progression. You want to improve visual acuity and that can come in two forms. One, the absolute best corrective visual acuity that you will get will be with contact lenses. And two, the other one may include surgical intervention to make you more correctable when you're not wearing those contact lenses. And that's where we really see the blend between, uh, between the various different modalities of surgeons and 
uh, optometrist, what you're going to see is that for each individual, it's going to be different. Yeah, I agree with you 100%, John. The way we present it at the practice is very similarly. I basically, what we'll do is tell patients the importance of vision correction. That's typically with contact lenses, a disease progression control with corneal cross-linking, and finally, the potential to reduce the severity of the disease, which is intacts or topography-guided PRK and that sort of thing. And then, of course, the last being, you know, keratoplasty for those who really have exhausted the other options. Consensus finding number 10. Nine of 13 believe that the fear of patients developing keratoconus is very and extremely significant for the doctor's decision pertaining to corneal refractive surgery. Consensus finding number 11. Nine of 13 believe that the average corneal refractive surgery candidate is not at all informed about keratoconus and related risk factors. As we can see from this uh, poll, we all agree that patients really are not well informed about this particular condition, especially those coming in for refractive surgical consults. It is really our job to make them aware and make them realize that we want them to have the best outcome possible. And if the best outcome possible means they can't have this procedure, albeit the right thing to do. If we can detect keratoconus before signs are present on the slit lamp, we can prevent patients from needing to undergo corneal transplantation, which has so many risks for vision loss. So I'm excited and hope that this, these new tools will help us to detect keratoconus early and offer treatment to prevent progression. Um, you know, one of the things that none of us experience, because I'm assuming that none of us have keratoconus, is the, you know, the daily impact from sunup to sundown. Uh, the impact that this has on people's lives. It's the first thing they think about in the morning when they wake up. It's the last thing they think about at the end of the day. Um, my personal opinion, we know the right tests to do. We know that we should implement an early intervention as best as possible um, with an Avigen type test, especially if there's family history, if you want to see if that offspring has the disease. Uh, but once you do, I think uh, sitting back and listening to the complaints that these patients have is, is critically important. And um, strenuously addressing uh, early intervention as best as possible, because as we all know, that's, uh, you know, stopping it as soon as possible and saving vision is what our job is. I would like to pose the point that I think the keratoconus affects not only an individual, but also their family and their community. So with this ability to diagnose and manage early, we can help the patient's quality of life, improve their quality of life, improve the economic burden for their whole entire lives, give them the independence, but really help communities and help their families. And it's so important. Yeah, I think that this is an incredibly impactful uh, test. You know, we live in a time where we now have a treatment to stop progression of the disease. And that really changes the onus to the practitioner to find the disease as soon as possible. We have an actionable intervention. Um, when we look at the things that we should consider running this test for, clearly children of keratoconics, individuals who have questionable findings on uh, corneal topography, individuals who have uh, a, a want for uh, corneal refractive surgery, 
individuals who uh, want myopia control, all of these have great applications for the use of this test to be able to determine whether or not corneal intervention is the correct intervention for those individuals and to be able to help us um, monitor and risk um, or, and assess risk for the disease. We realize that the benefit to genetic testing is providing the level of risk that that patient will have to developing keratoconus, in particular for those young individuals that maybe don't have any signs yet, particularly for those individuals who you have questionable findings and are looking for another piece of information to help guide them better. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this is really going to empower our abilities to make the best decisions for those patients and for the best visual outcomes over their lifetime. I think that would be one of the the telltale best signs if something like this could help us identify patients early enough and get them into treatment soon enough so that we're not dealing with these end-stage individuals. So that's where I really see the power in the test. And today we have technologies that allow us to detect the disease earlier along its continuum. Coupling that with our ability to control progression of keratoconus, we can now preserve visual function and improve patients' lives. The introduction of genetic testing for keratoconus, such as the Avagen test, further adds to our armamentarium.